Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But last week, as we started the new year, I always like to start the new year with most important things or first things. And so I directed our attention to Romans 1.16, which says, For the good news is the power of God unto salvation. You can't get anything more significant and important than that phrase. It's the good news. It's the message of Yeshua that he has come into our world as the prophets have said. This is what the good news is. This is the gospel, the good news. It is that Yeshua of Nazareth has come into the world and fulfilled all those prophecies about which the prophets spoke concerning the Messiah's coming. He has fulfilled all that stuff. We don't have time this morning uh, to go through this, but this is what we need to focus on. He has fulfilled all of that. He has fulfilled that not only in terms of his coming, but also in terms of what he taught and did. He came into our world according to what the scriptures taught us that Messiah was to expect to come into our world in the manner, in the time, in the place. And in coming, he also gave his life a ransom for many. It's another way of saying he died in our behalf. Another way of saying he provided us with the sacrifice for our sin. Another way of speaking about he provided that atonement that we are all in need of. Whether we realize it or not, we're all in need of it. So he came into our world, as the prophet said. He gave his life for us, as the prophet said, but in doing so, he had died. He rose on the third day, as the prophet said, and he ascended in his exalted state into, unto the right hand of our Heavenly Father. His ministry continues to go on because from there he is our great high priest. And as our great high priest, he is always making intercession for us. Not only is, our great, is he our great high priest making intercession for us, but as our great high priest, I suppose we could say, he is building for us. Because he says, I go to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a place for us. We're going to be amazed when we get there and what he has made for us. But he is making this for us. He's been doing this for 2,000 years. And so for 2,000 years, what can the Son of God be preparing? How good must it be? How beautiful will it be? How staggering all of that he is involved in in his preparation work for us. How wonderful that's going to be. Can't you imagine that? I mean, we can't imagine, but just think about that. And that's why we're told this is the blessed hope of the coming of our Lord and bringing us unto himself. 
This is why after, at the end of the conclusion of the book of Revelation, the book of the Revelation of Messiah, we think of it as a prophetic book. It is certainly that. But it's much more important than that. It's a book about the revelation of Messiah in all of his glory and sovereignty. It's a book about how God, our Messiah, is in control of all things. And all things, whether disastrous or wonderful, is in the hands of our Savior and Lord. And ultimately, he is grabbing all the kingdoms of the world, shaking them up, and they will all bow before him as the supreme ruler of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. That is the good news, all about which we've spoken. So Yeshua says, I mean, Paul says, for the good news is the power of God unto salvation. Here's where the power of God is most significantly made known. The transformation of lives in salvation. Not limited to that, but certainly preeminently that. The enabling of individuals to have a living and dynamic relationship with the living God of the universe. The power of God unto salvation for everyone who would believe. It's not limited to anyone. It is available to everyone. And it is available by virtue of embracing this good news, receiving this good news into our very lives. For this news is not just a matter of information. It is the reality of a person taking residence in our lives. That's the good news. There's a message, yes, but it's more than a message. It's a reality of God's presence in our lives by the Spirit of God. It's just staggering to imagine that the, the ruler of the universe has provided this for you and for me. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, to the Jew preeminently. It's a Jewish message. It is a message of the Jewish Messiah. It's the message of the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. It is the message of the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David. It's the message of the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David, and Joseph, and Mary. It is a Jewish message, and if it was not a Jewish message, it could be no message for anyone's benefit. It must be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we are looking for. All other religions fail, for they are no religions, they are false religions, they are wrong religions. Call them what you will. It is the good news that is the power of God into salvation and nothing else. So it's important that we start the new year rightly. It's about the good news that we are to be about and making it known to others and experiencing it powerfully in our own lives as well. So this morning, I want to sort of take uh, a move in another direction of importance. Certain disciplines, but I don't like to refer to them merely as disciplines, but certain things that we as a congregation need to be about. So I've drawn our attention to Matthew chapter 6 because Matthew chapter 6 contains for us what is referred to as the Lord's Prayer. I want to talk about prayer this morning, the importance of prayer, the significance of prayer, the centrality of prayer for the life of believers like you and me. So if you would open to Matthew chapter 6, I want to read these pa- this passage to you, and then I want to take you on a little tour of some passages uh, very quickly as I share just briefly, I, I hope briefly, about prayer. So in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, this then is how you should pray. 
Our Father. Why don't we say this together, right? We know the Lord's Prayer. Don, it's great to see you. Did you just walk in and I didn't notice? Or have you been there the whole time and I've just not focused? But it's good to see you because I know you're moving out to the Yucca Valley. So we need to keep praying for you. Okay, Matthew chapter 6. This then is how we should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some of your translations may say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, um, and it doesn't matter what translation you have. We can read it out with all different kinds of translations. Some might even like to say it in a whole different language. It's all good. Now, some have questioned whether or not we ought to refer to this as the Lord's Prayer. One reason is because the Lord could not have prayed at least one aspect of this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He could never have prayed that prayer because he never had a debt. He never transgressed, never sinned. So in that sense, we might say, okay, it's not the Lord's Prayer in the sense that he can say these prayers. But the other things he certainly could have said. And so they say it's the disciples' prayer. But the idea, because we as disciples would pray it, but the idea of it being the Lord's Prayer is meaning that this is the prayer the Lord taught us to pray. But this is not a prayer. He's not giving us words to say. He's telling us what our prayer life ought to consist of. Another way of putting it is he's giving us a model for prayer. The kinds of things we ought to be praying about. That's not to say we can't recite this prayer. I'm not saying that at all. I'm only saying what is going on here is, and if you look at Luke chapter 11, but you don't have to look there, it says that when the disciples saw Yeshua praying, they said, we'd like you to teach us how to pray. And so this is his teaching on how to pray. Or this is his teaching on what ought to be the context, the themes, the aspects of what it is we ought to be praying about. Now, how important is prayer? Keep your finger there for a moment. Just this one passage I like to draw attention to is Acts chapter 2. Because shortly after the Lord uses Peter in a rather dramatic manner to present the good news of Messiah, 3,000 people come to faith. Now, remember, Yeshua only had 11 disciples, 120 in the upper room. And after one message, there's an additional 3,000 who've come to faith. Where did they all go? How were they all ministered to? And that's really a a, a significant question, you know. They could have gathered 3,000 in the temple, a certain segment of the temple to worship. I suppose they could have. But they must have been divided up into home groups. They must have been divided up into smaller groups that could be gathering together. Because when you look at verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, there's no Britadashah yet. There's no New Testament scriptures. So when they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, they're talking about devoting themselves to how the apostles interpreted and applied and made known the Hebrew scriptures. That's what they had. And the teachings of Yeshua that they remembered him teaching them. Because remember what Yeshua himself said, I will send you the Holy Spirit and he will remind you of all things I have taught you. So they're teaching the things Yeshua had taught them, and they're teaching the truths that are contained in the Hebrew Scriptures that are seen in the life and ministry of Messiah as well. 
but they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're not just sort of studying them. They're devoting themselves. They're committing themselves. They are fully embracing these teachings that their lives would be conformed to it. That means they must have been fighting the tendencies to do other than what the scriptures were teaching them. Or what other than what the scriptures were teaching them. They were devoted to the scriptures. Therefore, this is what we must do. Not only did they devote themselves to this, but it says they also devoted themselves to fellowship. And in addition to fellowship, koinonia, this gathering of of the believers together, it says, and the breaking of bread. Now, some say the breaking of bread may be referring to the participating in the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. We haven't done this in a while. We will be doing that. But in the Lord's Supper. And that's possible. But it may just mean they devoted themselves to eating together. So this idea of fellowship and eating together seems to be commingled. I prefer to see things that way, but I I could be wrong. But the idea then is to say not only did they hang out with each other, but they engaged each other in their lives in what might be referred to as one of the most intimate contexts, eating with one another. Which meant to say they were connecting to one another. So here's 3,000 people. There's no church buildings. If they were gathering, they were in the local synagogues for worship. If they were gathering, they were in the temple for worship. But when they gathered as believers, among the things they did was devote themselves to the teaching of the word of God as the apostles expounded it and the teachings of Yeshua as the apostles taught it. Further, they were eating together. They were engaged in each other's lives. And that's a challenge we have here at Beth Ariel, isn't it? Because we get together once a week. We're not engaged in each other's lives. Few of us eat with each other on a regular, quote-unquote, kind of basis. Few of us know what's going on in each other's lives. Therefore, there can't be that real sense of fellowship. We have to do something about that, don't you think? And I'm not sure I have all the answers to that. So, you know, we have to come together and figure this out. But we need to get together in contexts that fulfill this. Not just Bible study groups, although I have nothing against that. But fellowship koinonia groups. Eating together groups. That's, That's not a problem for us, though. You know, the eating together groups. But we need to be doing this. And then it says, end to prayer. And by the way, that keeps coming up. And at the very end, it says, and and thus God added daily to their numbers such as were being being saved. Prayer is an integral part of the believers gathering with one another. So I want to talk a little bit about prayer this morning. I want to utilize the Lord's Prayer to just share these things. And then I want to draw our attention in conclusion to a prayer in Scripture and a prayer outside of Scripture that has been uh, particularly significant for me when I read it. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. Let me take you through this prayer in a, uh, briefly. There are different ways people have divided up this prayer. But what I want you to notice about this prayer, hadn't noticed this before, but something about this prayer is that Yeshua is teaching them how to pray 
Because they asked him, seeing how he prayed, they saw something different about Yeshua's prayer. And before Yeshua teaches them how to pray here in Matthew, he has an introductory section in verses one, uh, one to uh, one to four, and then verse, uh, verses five to eight. Now, I don't want to go through all of that, but there are two issues that we have to be concerned about with regard to prayer that Messiah brings up here. The issue of hypocrisy and the issue of anxiety. Those are the two things I think that are sort of shaping Yeshua's teaching on prayer. Because if you look what he says here, he says, when you pray, what is his concern? That your prayer not be hypocritical. And look at what he talks about in terms of a hypocritical prayer. A prayer in which they love to pray standing in the synagogues, on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you the truth, they will receive their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close your door and pray to your father who is, who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, Yeshua is not telling us we can't pray publicly. Yeshua himself prayed publicly. So he's not telling us we can't pray publicly. The only right place to pray is in your closet somewhere. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we ought not to pray hypocritically so as to be seen by others to be religious when in reality we're not very religious at all. We are people that are in need of him and that's why we must pray. In other words, our prayer ought to be honest prayers. They ought to be expressions of what we really feel, not the way we think we ought to feel because if we feel differently, people might think less of us religiously. You know what I'm talking about? People that might be praying because they may be ill and they're not supposed to be ill because if they walked with the Lord, they'd be well. That would be a hypocritical prayer because the guy is not well. And he needs to come before God and say, I am not well. I'm not feeling good. I am dealing with certain issues. This stuff is a struggle. This really is hard. Rather than standing on the street corner and say, God is fully in control. Everything is good and I have nothing to worry about. So what he's talking about is the issue of hypocrisy. And therefore, our prayers ought not to be religiously oriented, but actually, truthfully, a reflection of who we are and what we're struggling with. An issue of integrity and honesty. The second thing he's concerned about is this issue of anxiety. Because he says that we shouldn't be like the religious people in our own society, the Jewish religious leaders who want to pray to be seen, who are reflecting hypocrisy. But we ought not to be like the Gentiles who think because they pray more, God's going to hear more. So why did the Gentiles pray more? Because they were really anxious. They had a lot of anxiety about, will things get better? Maybe if I do this, if I do this, if I do that, things will get better. And then we start becoming very superstitious about how it is that God works in our lives. That if we pray more, if we pray longer, if we pray more often, God will most certainly hear us. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray long if God leads you to pray long. I'm not saying that you shouldn't uh, pray uh, as I just described. But what I'm saying is Yeshua is telling us that when we pray, we ought not to be anxious Because the Lord knows what we need, as he says here, even before we ask. So the two things he's concerned about is that our prayer would be genuine and that our prayer would be based on trust. That our prayer would address the issue of hypocrisy in terms of how it is we pray. 
and that our prayer would be, would address the issue of anxiety. That we don't have to babble on and on and on. But we need simply to pre- present our requests before the Lord and leave it with him, trusting him to do what is right in our behalf. So this then is how he tells us. That's the manner, that's sort of the attitude with which we ought to pray, he's telling us. But there are four things he sort of homes in on. There are different ways to look at the Lord's Prayer, but these four ways i like us to look at. First of all, he's telling us that our prayer ought to be prayer that worships the Father. And that's where it starts. Our Father in heaven. Now, last Wednesday when we had our Bible study, Paul had brought up, you know, I just, ra- I just asked the question, what do you notice about this? And he said the very first word, our. This is a community prayer. If you notice, it's all first person plural. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Protect us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. This is prayer that in one sense is not intended to be an isolated experience only, but is to be a corporate experience that involves the body as a whole or segments of the body who are gathered together. That's why in Acts chapter 2 you have 3,000, but they're devoting themselves together in prayer as they are praying together. Certainly they prayed individually. Yeshua himself prayed individually. But they also prayed collectively. So we need times in which we pray together. And when we pray, our prayer ought to be an act of worship. Our Father who art in heaven. Now when the phrase is used in heaven, it doesn't simply mean he's up there, we're down here. It means our God who is supreme ruler in all of the universe. And so therefore, he is the one that we worship. He is the one we bow before. He's the one who is to be acknowledged and received and accepted and spoken to. So we worship the Father, our Father. And that in and of itself is really significant. I mean, Yeshua could have said, pray to my Father, but be careful. He's my Father, not yours. But he doesn't. He says, pray our Father. Yeshua invites us to look upon God as our Father. Not in the same sense as God is the Father of the Lord Yeshua. We don't have time to go into all of that theologically. But in the sense that because of who He is, He invites us to come alongside of Him. And by virtue of the salvation experience we have in Him, His Father becomes our Father as well. And Paul even says, we don't even, not only ought we to address Him as our Father, but He says we can address Him as our Abba. Our daddy gets even more intimate than Yeshua does here. But the first thing we need to remember is our praying, our times of prayer need to be worshipful. That means sometimes you need time to just get the body, the mind, the heart in a place where you truly are not just mouthing words, but truly worshiping God. Truly interacting with God. Having a connection with God. I'm really talking with the master of the universe. I'm really communing with him and we worship him as such. In other words, we don't just take out a prayer book and say things. This is one of the concerns I always have about our worship in song. We look at words and we sing words. But the singing of those words are meant to be a singing of worship before the Lord. That the words are not just to be mouthed and stated. But the words are to be an expression of our direct love and admiration 
and honor and reverence for the Lord. These times of singing, we must begin to see our moments of worship and not just singing. When we play our music, we need to see that our playing is an act of worship, not just completing a task of staying on beat or staying with the right notes or the right chords. In other words, our praying, our acting needs to be worship before God. And it's really hard when you're focused so hard on something to at the same time sort of let go of that something so you can just worship God. There's a risk in that. And the risk is, uh-oh, am I in the right spot when I'm playing? And that's what goes through my mind. I'm always thinking, I just want to play where I want to close my eyes, just play. But I'm not that good that I can do that. But if I don't do that, then I'm riveted to the page. And it's like I'm not really worshiping. And it's the same thing with music. You know, some of these songs, we know the words. We don't even need the words up there. And the words become a distraction from worship because we're focused on the words and not just worshiping God and the words becoming a vehicle of our expression of worship. So the first thing the Lord's Prayer says to me is we need to be worshipers of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There are other things we could say about that, but let me move on to the second thing that strikes me about this passage. Not only are we to be ones that worship the Father, but we are to be ones that acknowledge that our sustenance comes from the Father. So we say, give us this day our daily bread. What we're praying, Lord, is we are utterly dependent upon you. Would you provide for us what I need for today? Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, give us this year our daily bread. Give us this lifetime our daily bread. He says, give us today what we need in order to get through this day. Sustain me day by day so that I might see your hand of presence in my life. So while we are to worship the Father, we're also to be reminded in our prayer that we are sustained by the Father. And that's why we need to ask for requests from the Father. Might you do this for us? And what I've been impressed with, with a couple of these prayers, because this is not my general take in prayer, is to be as specific and as concrete as I can be. I want to share with you a couple of prayers. I want you to think about that aspect of praying. Being specific and concrete about what it is we suspect we need. We might be wrong, but it's interesting These two prayers I want to share with you that these men who prayed were thinking fully about what they needed to the nth degree and brought it before God and allowed God to do what he would do with what it is they were asking. And so we need to be dependent upon him. And so our prayers are ones that worship and our prayers are ones that express a dependency upon him, for he is the one who sustains us. And that's like Sukkot, you know, we have the Sukkot booth, and it's meant to be sort of flimsy, and you look through it because we are fragile people. We are fragile people. Did any of us suspect 
that Aton, within a very short moment like that, would be rushed into the hospital. Here he is on a ventilator and unconscious, and we're praying for him. None of us expect that to happen to us. I'm certain he did not expect that. But we are fragile people. And things like that invade our space unannounced and unaware. Who suspected a gunman would go inside a, co- a kosher supermarket? We're fragile people. And we don't know what awaits us. Therefore, it is the Lord who must sustain us moment by moment. But it's not only that. Not only are we to worship the Father. Not only are we to acknowledge our sustenance from the Father. But then he says in verse 12, forgive us our debts. We need to look to the Father for pardon. We need to look to the Father for forgiveness. In other words, we need to be forthright about our weaknesses. And I'm being kind. We ought to be forthright about our rebelliousness. Still a little kind, not as kind as weaknesses. We need to be forthright about our sin. About our combativeness to God. And our resistance to his ways. So there's always a need to bring before him a request for, please forgive me, Lord, because I am in need of it. But not only that, the prayer then suggests, not just suggests, it tells us he's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He forgives us our sin. That's what Yeshua is telling us. And so we need to look to Messiah, look to our Father for forgiveness of our sin, knowing that Yeshua has provided the atonement, the covering that removes our sin from us. So not only is our prayer to be an act of worship, not only is our prayer to be uh, one in which we are expressing our dependence upon him, that our sustenance comes from him, not only is our prayer to be one in which we look to him for forgiveness, but lastly, we look to him for protection. And so he says, Lead us not into temptation. That's not to say God leads us into temptation, but the evil one does. The Lord may lead us into times of testing to demonstrate our righteousness, but he never lures us into evil. But the evil one does. And so he says, protect us from the workings of the evil one. May he not, as he said to Peter, sift us. Like grain. And Yeshua said to Peter, That is his desire, but I have prayed for you. And so we want to pray for ourselves and one another that the Lord would protect us from the onslaught of the enemy. Now, when I think about these prayers, I want to, I want to share with you two prayers in Scripture that have just um, impressed, impressed me greatly and have ministered to my heart. With regard to the nature of prayer. Look at Genesis uh, chapter 24, I think it is. This is such a wonderful prayer. It's a prayer of Abraham's servant. Who is not named, but is no doubt Eliezer. 
And Abraham tells his chief servant of his household to go to his father's home in Haran, where he had come from, to get a wife for his son Isaac. And the servant is told that he is not to get a wife for Isaac from anywhere else. Do not, he says, two or three times Abraham repeats this, do not take a wife from my son from among the Canaanites. The pressure is on the servant. He's got to travel back to Haran, area of northern Syria, maybe around Iraq, in order to get a wife for his master's son. And he tells them, don't take one of the daughters from the Canaanites. And of course, at that point, the servant says, but what if the woman's not willing to come? What if I find this wife, but she won't follow me? Abraham says, then you are released from your obligation to me. But God is going twice, this is said. God is going to send his angel before you, and he will lead you to find a wife for my son. But if it doesn't happen, then your obligation is ended, and you have, uh, and you fulfilled your promise to me. I love that lack of presumptuousness. I believe God's going to do it, but if he doesn't, then you no longer are obligated. It's again like the three men, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. God's going to deliver us. We're not, we're not going to have to go into or we will be able to survive that fiery furnace, they say to Nebuchadnezzar. We will not bow down to the idols. God will deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your idols. And I like that. I believe God's going to do this, but if he doesn't, God will still have his ways. So Abraham says, okay, I believe God's going to do this, but if he doesn't, you're no longer obligated. So off the servant goes with a bunch of servants, a number of camels, and he finally comes into the city in which he is to the town of Nahor. And it's there that he's outside a well, outside the town by a well. And traditionally in the ancient world, the women, stronger than men, the women were to draw water for the camels and for whatever other needs they may have. And so the servant of Abraham prays. And I love his prayer. It's an amazing prayer. Verse 12. He prayed, O Lord, I love the humility, God of my master Abraham. He says, give me success today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. It isn't, he's not praying for himself. Kindness to me. He says, show kindness to my master. I love the master. He's such a great man. Show kindness to him. He says, behold, I'm standing beside the spring. Like God doesn't know that. Isn't that kind of cool? Hey, Lord, here's where I am. I'm by the spring. In case you're just not, you're not noticing. I'm right here. But God knows this. But I love this man's prayer. This is what I'm talking about in terms of putting the details down. Thinking it all. He's just, he's. He's talking to God like God's right next to him. That's how real, that's the communion that he has. This is really kind of cool, isn't it? He says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm right by the uh, spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. It's like, it's like, you know, like on a phone conversation. So what's going on? Well, I'm right by the spring, and there's some women coming out to draw water. And, you know, God sees all this. But he's praying this to him. And he says, look, I'm standing beside the spring. The daughters, they're coming out to water. May it be that when I say to a girl, 
Please let down your jar that I may drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Oh my goodness, you know. I mean, I've never watered camels, right? But he's got like 10 or 20 camels. How much water are these camels going to drink? It's going to be a lot. And the Hebrew text has the Hebrew word ve before the verbs, which is the word and. And so the text goes on. And Rebecca went and drew water. And she came to the camel. And, she, and, and it gives the impression of she's doing this a long time. You know, now the English translations, they don't like the repetitiveness. So they say, then she did this, and she did this, later she did that, again she went. But in the Hebrew, it's just this ongoing repetitiveness, and it's sort of like, and, 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 because this is taking a lot of time. And this is a great expression of, in other words, nobody's going to do this. You know, who's going to do this? But this woman, not, and he doesn't even ask for it. He just says, the one that I say, can I have some water? She's going to say, hey, I'd love to get you some water. And I'll get it for your camels too. They'll spend all day here, you know, doing this. And so what happens is, he says, but th by this I will know that you've shown kindness. Look at verse 15, before he finished praying. That's exactly what Yeshua said. The Lord knows your needs before you ask. So even before he finished praying, Rebecca came out. She was the daughter of Bethuel. The girl was very beautiful. No man had ever laden with her. She was a virgin. She went down to the spring, filled a jar, came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, please give me a drink. And she said, drink, my Lord. And not only this, but she lowered her head and gave him a drink. And after this, she had given him a drink. She said, I'll draw water for your camels too. Until they've all finished drinking. So she quickly emptied a jar in the trough, ran back to the well to draw more on her, and drew enough for all her camels without saying a word. And she went, and she and the man is watching her. And, she, and he knows this is an answer to the prayer. So look at verse 22. Look how he responds. He bowed down, and he worshipped the Lord. Isn't that cool? He doesn't just take it for granted. says, thank you, Lord. And he just goes on. No, he takes a moment. Is the idea prayer is not something you can rush into. It's something that takes a little bit of time, something that takes a little bit of, of preparation. So he bows his head and he worships and he says, praise to the Lord, the God of my master. Again, the humility who has not abandoned his kindness. Look at this. Give us this day our daily bread and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. And then when he tells the story, look at verse, look at verse 42, when he meets up with uh, Abraham's brother, who is at Nahor at this time or whatever, and tells him, you know, I'm from Abraham. He's telling the story and, he's, and says, and then I came to the spring and then I prayed, oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will please grant success to the journey on which I've come. See, I'm standing beside the spring. It's like, he's got this thing down. If a maiden comes out to draw, I say to her, please let me drink. She'll not only dr dr give me a drink, but also the camels. And look, verse 45, before I finished praying uh, in my heart. Isn't that kind of neat? Now we know the manner in which he prayed. Not like the hypocrites that needs to be seen, but in his heart. And he says that before he even finished, Rebecca came out. And she said, God answered my prayer. And then uh, he says, look at verse 48. He says, and I bow down and I worship the Lord. I praise the Lord, the God of my master, who had, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter and, and so on. And that he would show me kindness so that I may know which way to turn. 
I love the specificity with which he prays. I love the gratitude that he expresses. I love the humility with which he comes before God, comes boldly, but with humility. That's the paradox of all this. He expresses gratitude in worship and in praise. Let me share you another. This has been a prayer that's just been, um, I just love it. And I've shared it maybe three or four or five times this week. So some of you may have heard it. I don't know. But I finished reading the book, Killing Patton. And, oh, uh, Renee, I, I think it's in my office, so I have it. Thank you for loaning it. And I loved it. You know, it was really great. Wasn't it great? Yeah, it was really a, a wonderful, brief, you know, sort of history of, of the last moment of the uh, last few years of Patton's uh, life and service uh, in the Army. And in it, uh, O'Reilly rep- reports, and Patton evidently wrote out his, his pr- a prayer. And it occurred just before the relief of the soldiers, the 101st Airborne that was stuck in Bastogne. They were surrounded by the German offensive, the Battle of the Bulge. The bulge that the Germans had placed into the um, Allied uh, lines was 60 miles deep, 30 miles wide. They just ran right over the American troops. Allied troops, British in the North, Americans in the South. And a group of soldiers got stuck in Bastogne. In fact, at the very last moment, the 101st Airborne, which was on leave, they didn't even have winter gear, they didn't have their, their arms, they didn't have their ammunition, they were called to the front from Paris immediately. On the way, troops were retur- retreating and the troops were giving them their guns and ammunition. And they headed out to the front lines. They go into the city of Bastogne. The Germans attack. They surround the entire village. And the 101st Airborne that are in there are stuck. And the rest of the German offensive is pushing forward. The Americans are moving back. And from the south, Patton's troops are are coming up. He wants to attack because he was a very aggressive general. But he was told to wait and wait and wait. So four days before Bastogne was eventually delivered, this was in December, it was cold, it was freezing. Shortly before Christmas, it was like December 23rd, we're talking about 1944, Patton goes into a church to pray. Now, Patton was a dicey kind of guy, so his prayers have a number of expletives in it, but I'm going to you know, sort of navigate around that. So he comes into the, into, the, into the church. Here's what he prays. Sir, this is Patton talking. And it reminds me of Eliezer, right? Yeah. This is Patton talking. Now, I don't know his relationship to God, right? but I love his prayer. Sir, <laughs> this is Patton talking. The past 14 days have been straight expletive. Rain, snow, more rain, more snow. And I'm beginning to wonder... What's going on in your headquarters? Whose side are you on anyway? For three years, my chaplains have been telling me that this is a religious war. This, they tell me, is the Crusades all over again, except that we're riding tanks instead of chargers. They insist that we're here to annihilate the Germans and the godless Hitler so that religious freedom may return to Europe. Up until now, I've gone along with them, for you have given us your unreserved cooperation. Clear skies and a calm sea in Africa made the landings highly successful and helped us eliminate Rommel. 
Sicily was comparatively easy, and you supplied excellent weather for the armored dash across France, the greatest military victory that you have thus far allowed me. You have often given me excellent guidance in difficult command situations, and you have led German units into traps that made their elimination fairly simple. But now you've changed horses midstream. You seem to have given von Ronstadt, he was the commanding office general in the among the Nazis, given von Ronstead every break in the book, and frankly, he's beating us. My army is neither trained nor equipped for winter warfare, and as you know, this weather is more suitable for Eskimos than for Southern cavalrymen. But now, sir, I can't help but feel that I've offended you in some way, that suddenly you've lost all sympathy for our cause, that you're throwing in with von Ronstead and his paper-hanging god, Adolf Hitler. You know without telling me You know, without me telling you, that our situation is desperate. Sure, I can tell my staff that everything is going according to plan, but there's no use telling you that. My 101st Airborne is holding out against tremendous odds in Bastogne, and that this continual storm is making it impossible to supply them even from the air. I've sent Hugh Gaffey, one of my ablest generals, with his 4th Armored Division north toward the all-important road center to relieve the encircled garrison, and he's finding your weather more difficult than he is the Krauts. I don't like to complain unreasonably, but my soldiers from Meuse to Echternach, two rivers, are suffering tortures of the damned. Today I visited several hospitals, all full of frostbite cases. The wounded are dying in the fields because they cannot be brought back for medical care. Sir, I can't fight a shadow. Without your cooperation from a weather standpoint, I'm deprived of accurate disposition of the German armies, and how can I be intelligent in my attack? All of this probably sounds unreasonable to you, but I've lost all patience with your chaplains who insist that this is a typical Ardennese winter and that I must have faith. Forget faith and patience. You've just got to make up your mind whose side you're on. (laughs) You must come to my assistance so that that I may dispatch the entire German army as a birthday present to the Prince of Peace. Sir, I've never been an unreasonable man. I'm not going to ask you to do the impossible. I don't even insist upon a miracle, for all I request is four days of clear weather. Give me four days so that my planes can fly, so that my fighter bombers can bomb and strafe, so that my reconnaissance may pick out targets for my magnificent artillery. Give me four days of sunshine to dry this blasted mud so that my tanks roll, so that ammunition and rations may be taken to my hungry, ill-equipped infantry. I need these four days to send von Ronstadt and his godless army to their Valhalla. I am sick of this unnecessary butchering of American youth in exchange for four days of fighting weather. I'll deliver you enough krauts to keep your bookkeepers months behind in their work. Amen. So four days later, December 26, 1944, the Bastogne is relieved. One of his generals says, I'll, I'll attack. And Patton is so, so frustrated, he says, go and make the attack. The weather did not change. The weather continued to be cold, wintry, foggy, cloudy. But they just went and they went through it. They went from four different cities and conquered them and eventually broke in to Bastogne. The reason they were able to do that was because the weather that he desired to be cleared up also hampered the Germans from sending supplies to their troops. And in fact, the Germans had overstepped their supply lines. 
so that the only way they could receive supplies would be with airdrops. And the Germans had to do this because they ran out of ammunition and fuel. So they made their airdrops, but because they couldn't see very well, the airdrops landed on the American side. And so all of the ammunition, all of the fuel, the Americans received. And so the German panzer divisions, there were hundreds and hundreds of these tanks, were stuck. They couldn't move forward. They couldn't retreat. They were stalled. And many of these uh, tank pl platoons left their tanks and began to just march on foot to retreat. But many of them, what they began to do is they were all SS uh, soldiers. So they knew that if they were captured, Patton had given the order, anyone with an SS insignia, you just shoot them. And so they knew that if they had the SS insignia on, they were dead. So many of them were taking them off. But if they were found taking them off by the Germans, the Germans shot them. So they were really stuck. So most of them went into the American lines because they were brought into prisoner war camps and they were taken care of. And thus, the weather hampered the Germans more than it hampered the Americans. So on December 27th, after Bastogne was relieved, Patton went into the very same church. And this time, he bowed down on his knees, and he took out his prayer, and this is what he prayed. He said, Sir, this is Patton again, and I beg to report complete progress. Sir, it seems to me that you've been much better informed about the situation than I was. Because it was that awful weather which I caused you so much, which, uh, because it was that awful weather which I cursed you so much, which made it possible for the German army to commit suicide. That, sir, was a brilliant military move. <laughs> and I bow humbly to your supreme genius. Amen. So... Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.